So this would have been a good time for you to bring your guitar and right. Is there, what's going on over there? We got a keyboard. Yeah, we should probably do some numbers. I agree. Can you play the keys? Sure. We can play a duet. What? Sure. We will play. Yeah. Anyway. Well, nothing's going to stop us now. Maybe. Ooh. Well, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Don't stop believing. Don't stop. Is that really a duet though? Well, we could make be. anything a duet. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> we can work together for a year <laughs> and change. Yeah. The Kurt Brianna thing. Yeah, yeah. that's true. As you could probably tell, Brianna Nomi and Kurt Stemhagen make a good team. Both were public school teachers for several years prior to entering the world of educational research. Kurt is a professor of education at VCU and Brianna is a PhD student. They both work with Richmond Teachers for Social Justice, a local organization focused on prioritizing teacher voice in the public discourse about issues facing our schools. Kurt plays a pretty mean acoustic guitar and you're likely to run into Brianna at local Richmond coffee shops. They are awesome people who are highly committed to supporting our public schools and had thoughtful things to say about the current state and future direction of public education, both locally and nationally. One quick note. In our conversation about the work being done around Richmond on public education, we discussed the recently proposed Education Compact. There's been some development since our conversation, so stay tuned at the end of the episode for an update from Brianna. What's the purpose of public schools? <laughs> Start with the easy one. Start with the easy right. one. Yeah. Nothing to unpack there. Well, it's a great question, and it's one that is not asked often enough. I mean, I think one of the one of the troubles we have is it seems like we're really interested in like immediate practical solutions, which is a reasonable thing. But if you're not um, if you're not sure what it is that you're trying to accomplish or what the purpose is, it's difficult to know whether your immediate practical solutions are good. So the question is always like, good for what? Mm -hmm. And so. It's a really important question. There historically has been a lot of work on this, and, and uh, there's a bunch of different answers, I guess, or maybe a better way to put it is there's more than one purpose that's kind of floating around if we're talking about the American context um, <clears throat> historically. Uh, and the one that I've always been most interested in, the one that sort of animates the way that I think about things is um, the, the public civic purpose of education, like to think about what you need, what it means to have schooling in a democracy, in our democracy. And um, again, there are other ones, the purposes like making sure that our, um, that we have employable, for individual students, from their point of view, making sure that we have employable, you know, they're going to come out with skills to be able to have jobs and um, put food on the table. These are important things too. Or that, um, well, and the idea that there's opportunity, which actually gets back to the civic purposes again. So I'd rather focus on the civic purposes and say that it's like in the very beginning, the first ideas about public education in, in America. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson proposed a plan for public education uh, that everybody would get three years of free public schooling at taxpayer expense, and it was too radical a plan to pass at the time. But the idea was that if we were going to have an informed electorate, the, uh, you know, you need to have people who are at least smart enough to pick the right people or rule and I mean that was a kind of early version of it, and it's gotten more. Um, it's gotten more to the point where you realize it's not even just about people being smart enough to pick the right people to rule. Now we hope that it's about people being able to self-govern and people being able to get educated so they can lead the kinds of lives that they want to lead, to have the kind of opportunity, both mm -hmm. economic and social and cultural and, and all that. And I think now in our, I mean, in our world, it's important for students and people to be in community with each other. So public schools provide that opportunity for 
for people to learn how to interact with each other and be compassionate and kind and, um, yeah, just how to coexist. Mm-hmm. So. so it sounds like um, kind of community and civic engagement is sort of at the forefront of what you're both thinking about public education. So, Kurt, to your point, when you're talking about how there's this, you could kind of look at not necessarily as a dichotomy, but you, it could be kind of an ipsative question, right? Well, you can have both. I mean, so I don't want to, I, I think that is a, it's not a great dichotomy to hold up for too long. It's mm-hmm. okay to, you know, for the sake of just chatting about it, I can see why we would separate it for, for a moment. But, um, you know, I, I guess... Another important thing to think about is that public education, especially P-12 education, I don't think it's primarily supposed to be about providing training for particular jobs. That's actually a pretty narrow way to think about it. It's more like, I mean, don't get me wrong, the, the practical component of learning how to do something so you can get paid in order to, in order to live is important. Uh, but at the same time, um, I like to think about kind of the, the, the kind of liberal education purposes uh, of schooling that are more about like you become a certain kind of person mm-hmm. in the world, and again, that a big part of that is the stuff Brianna was talking about, some of the the kind of social components and all that. But it's also like, you know, through a through a liberal education, you um, it's how you become kind of fully human and cultured and understand the world and be in the world in a certain way. And so, I think that ideally, a P twelve education has a lot of elements of that too, mm-hmm. and in some ways that. That's the bridge, I guess, because I think it's, you could also look at a liberal education as a kind of a, like a, a foundation for whatever comes next in terms of specific, you know, job training or career type stuff, mm-hmm. which, you know, you, you need to do at some point too. Yeah. I think um, the recent proposition out of Chicago is kind of a good example of exploring this a little bit, this idea that their, their graduates need to have some sort of post-secondary plans that are defined to be able to get a high school diploma. And there's a lot of conversation around that right now. And I think wherever you land in that debate kind of gives you an idea about what you, it sort of bubbles out what you think the, the central purpose of oh, good. getting an education is. Yeah. So the second question is harder than the first one because the first one's easy, right? Uh, what is the biggest challenge? There's plenty of challenges facing public education today, but what do you see as the biggest challenge facing public education today? Bring it out. Let's start yeah. with you. So obviously there are a lot of challenges. Um, the one that I like to focus on the most, or not to like to, but <laughs> I'm challenged to focus on the most is um, the lack of teacher voice present in public education and the conversation around public schools. Um, so many people like to make decisions for teachers, like to make decisions for what happens in mm-hmm. classrooms, but the fact that teachers, the people who are actually providing the education, aren't at the table seems to me to be one of the biggest challenges, um, specifically because we provide the context that people may not have going into making policy decisions and other decisions impacting students and teachers and families mm-hmm. and communities. Um, so really, I think if we were able to confront that challenge and get teachers' voices elevated, that that would be a step in the right direction. So mm-hmm. you're saying that teachers, we should listen to what teachers have to say about public school? <laughs> I know. It's a crazy idea. Controversial. <laughs> Why do you think that the, their voice has been um, maybe over time, but maybe even abruptly pulled out of the, the um, conversation around public education? I think it goes back to a lot of the way that teachers have per- been perceived as professionals or the lack of way that people have been uh, teachers have been perceived as professionals um, and just the idea that anybody can really be a teacher um, so I don't really know that there's one specific reason that teachers have been um, removed from that conversation but I think that the challenge to their professionalism is one of the reasons I blame it mostly on Arnold Schwarzenegger's kindergarten cop I don't know if you've seen that but he is a policeman and he goes undercover and he <laughs> yeah. is initially overwhelmed but he ends up 
whipping those children into shape as a kindergarten, posing as a kindergarten teacher. I think that's pretty much that's it. That's it. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this conversation's over. Kurt yeah, figured exactly. it out. Exactly. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, in, in all seriousness, though, the um, the idea that um, the idea that teachers aren't thought of as professionals. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it. It's not unrelated to the fact that teachers tend to be women, and that the kind of work that's considered women's work, like it's a, a caring profession, and it's thought of as sort of less than, or easier than, or less important or something, which is, it's hogwash. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a terrible, terrible thing. And I think when we start talking more about research, this will come back around. But if, if, I, if I could say one other thing in terms of the biggest challenges, it ties in. Um, so we started talking about the public purpose of education. One of the biggest challenges is, and it's really strange, I didn't expect that this would happen, uh, you know, 20 years ago, but the, the attacks on public education aren't so much about the way education is being done, the way schooling is being done, there are attacks on the very idea of the value of the public. Mm-hmm. So it's the public part that's really getting mm-hmm. getting attacked, and and it's so it's a this is very political, mm-hmm. and uh, very dangerous and very undermining. And it's I mean, you know, if you look at like the rise of school choice and a, a lot of the privatization that's kind of woven into most of that, most of those discussions, uh, I think that uh, I think that's the the single biggest challenge. And mm-hmm. I would say that one of the reasons why it's been able to happen is to Brianna's point, uh, that unfortunately teacher voices aren't heard. If teacher voices were heard more, I think there'd be a stronger, easier case to be made for like why public schools, the public and public schools matter. So both of you guys are involved in educational research. You also have um, experience in the in the, the practice realm for K-12 education. What role do you think research plays in advancing public education? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I have... Um, I have worries about the way that ed research kind of interacts with the stuff that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's a lot of great research that gets done, of all, all kinds of research um, that helps us learn more, know more, understand things. But I think that there's like a big, broad tendency toward venerating scientifically-based approaches that um, sometimes can work to, yeah, to obscure the, kind of the heart and soul of, of teaching and learning, which is the relationships that kids and grown-ups have and kids and kids have relationships you know it's, it's a relational thing I would say and so a scientifically based approach um, as the quote of only only acceptable method is is a problem because it, it pushes us I, I mean I can be specific if you want how, how it is that it sure okay um, so if you have a study like a scientifically based study that when I say scientifically based I mean um, you design a study in education that sort of mimics the um, like the medical model where you have a uh, an intervention or a, a treatment or in other words you have some kind of a something that you want to do in a classroom and then you want to measure the the change that took place as a result of it. usually that is in terms of like learning a lot of times the stand-in for what learning is uh, is through standardized tests which again is kind of a side thing we could talk about but anyway um, if you have a you have a project like that you need in order to know that the change uh, in whatever variable you're trying to measure, in order to know that the change in learning or whatever was caused by the, the, um, the treatment, or what's, mm-hmm. a, what's a better word? Of, I don't know if I'm... Intervention. Okay, sure. so if, if, it's, if it was caused by the intervention, you need to hold as much other stuff constant as possible. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the things that all of a sudden is not desirable in a scientifically-based project is if you have a teacher presumably uh, an engaged professional teacher who knows what she's doing, who exercises her professional judgment as she sees fit, and it's not part necessarily of the intervention, 
that's seen as a problem too. It's called the fidelity treat, treatment fidelity mm-hmm. that like it wasn't the, the treatment or the intervention wasn't applied properly is the way to look at it. And really, what we're talking about is a teacher doing her job. Yeah. So I think you know there are ways there are people that do more subtle work that like kind of kind of tries to take care of some of the problems with this. Mm-hmm. But I think like fundamentally as a like as an approach, it has this kind of big this big problem. I wouldn't say, like I said, I'm not trying to say that everybody that does work in this vein is mm-hmm. that it's bad or something because a lot of we do learn a lot of good stuff from this. Right. It's just as as a general approach, it tends to make it seem like it, it seems like it moves us toward kind of teacher proofing uh, mm-hmm. schools. And I think that's a big mistake. I think that's true on the student side, too, because when you talk about controlling for things in research, um, socioeconomic status is a good example. Sometimes the best that we can do in, in a research setting is to um, capture somebody's free and reduced lunch qualification mm-hmm. at school, which is a proxy for income kind of at best. And even then, there's a ton of variability in there. But being low SES is way more than your income, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like it's education mm-hmm. level. It's all this additional strain that could be put on your family. It could be the neighborhood you live in. There's all these contextual variables that we often don't capture in there. And so maybe it sounds like there's a disconnect that happens maybe because we focus too much on being kind of post-positivistic in the way that we do our research, and then maybe it's something we need to be more mindful about. Because one of the things we talk about in educational research is this idea of public intellectualism. And I feel like, as an educational researcher, I feel like there's not much of a debate there. If you're not being public in the way you're doing this, then why are you doing educational research? And, and yet, the way to prestige is through... Um, having like ed research kind of mimic other forms that more traditional or more more sort of sci- hard scientific or natural scientific models and where where being a public intellectual isn't really the norm so mm-hmm. I think that's there is that tension there and I you know going back to what Brianna said to me a part of the solution I don't know if we're supposed to be at solutions yet but to me a part of the solution <laughs> lies in, always in really like thinking about what it is that teachers are doing and what they think about what they're doing and get, finding a way to get that out there and there mm-hmm. is research that can do that I mean for sure that's that's a you know, a different brand of research. Yeah, when I think about my time as a teacher and how I thought about educational research or these scientifically based research interventions that were presented to us, best practices that are presented to us, I mean, teachers are a lot of times hostile to those to those interventions. Mm-hmm. They don't consider the contextual factors in classrooms. They don't consider teachers' um, levels of expertise in the profession. Um, so, if we really want educational research to inform practice. It needs to consider those things. It needs to take the teacher's perspective into account. Mm-hmm. So. so there's a real rift between. Yeah. Uh, it's it seems crazy, but there is like a long running rift between, like the, the the ed school, the research that goes on in the ed school, and the teachers, and kind of a perception. It runs both ways, I think, a little bit. There's like structural impediments in the university that keep researchers from being able to have the kind of like engagement in the P12 world that they mm-hmm. might want to have. And then on the other side, there's a, a feeling that teachers have that that researchers don't they don't know what's going on. It's kind of, and I think when I when I was a middle school teacher many years ago, my first week of school as a new teacher, I was with my mentor teacher, and we were walking toward my first professional development, and she said, "Kurt, do you want to know the surest way to make sure nobody listens to anything that this person says?" And I said, "Sure. What is it?" She said, "Put the letters PhD after their name." <laughs> so I think that speaks to the. <laughs> It speaks to that kind of rift. Well, so maybe one way of um, connecting over that rift is for researchers such as yourselves to get involved in the community and really engage with the teachers. And you two are really heavily involved in Richmond Teachers for Social Justice. Mm-hmm. And I'm really eager to unpack that work that you do. So talk about Richmond Teachers for Social Justice. How did you get started? The purpose of it? Brown, get us going. 
So um, I'm just going to provide a brief introduction and then I will let Kurt take over because so years ago I was in a master's program and I took a class with Kurt and um, during that class he kind of said that they were getting this thing going it was called you know they didn't really have a name for it at the time but I went to those very beginning meetings of Richmond Teachers for Social Justice so I mean Kurt was really there from the beginning so maybe if you could provide some of the background then I can take it from there. I'll just say like two sentences to get you going again on this, Brianna. <laughs> so so uh, Jesse Seneschal was a doc student at the time, and he is a PhD now, He, um, uh, who should be listened to, by the way, not, notwithstanding my mentor Tim's comments. Um, <laughs> Frequently on the podcast. <laughs> he's our director of work. Yeah. yeah, and he's uh, uh, one, one of the most obviously wonderful people mm-hmm. you know, that I know. Um, so anyway, he, um, he and I started Richmond Teachers for Social Justice, and basically Jesse had taught in Chicago public schools for a long time, and they had a pretty robust organization uh, called Chicago Teachers for Social Justice, so our name really isn't all that clever, but um, <laughs> but we we went back and forth a lot about what, what the, the organization should be called, but we uh, we started it, I don't know, it might have been, it might have been seven or eight, eight mm-hmm. years ago now about, mm-hmm. I guess, and uh, it's kind of had a lot of ups and downs, and we've done a lot of really cool stuff, and we're always trying to be... Um, we always want it to be teacher focused, not kind of university person led, and so that's made it a really fun adventure in a lot of ways. I'll let Grandma speak. <laughs> so I've just recently become kind of reacquainted with Richmond Teachers for Social Justice. Um, some of my work in the community um, has has been drawn from my experience in the classroom. So I left public education last year, entered this program, um, due to a lot of my frustration with um, feeling disempowered and feeling like I couldn't exercise my voice. So I um, rejoined Richmond Teachers for Social Justice this fall, and we've kind of been working and trying to figure out where we stand in the community and how we'll work with the community. And um, right around the election, there was a big group that just really remobilized. Mm-hmm. We got a big um, big group together in the fall, and we decided that we wanted to, do, we wanted to be more action-oriented. So we've been doing a number of things, but I personally have been working with Richmond Public Schools and working um, to elevate teachers' voices regarding the education compact that was just um, issued and a few other things that have come down the pike in terms of public education. But really the goal of Richmond Teachers for Social Justice for me is elevating those voices that aren't commonly at the table, so Mm -hmm. teachers, um, community members who often also are not in the same room together having those conversations. And Kurt brought out his computer while we were talking, which, I mean, he's thinking about something. Now <laughs> um, just checking my email. No, <laughs> kidding. Already uh, bored. important. Yeah, I'd moved on. And I was day trading, too. Um, I was thinking about how one thing that Teachers for Social Justice has been working on that kind of spans the gap between, like, the, the this idea, what we call the uh, a national teaching for public schools. And so that sounds very... Um, national. Um, and I guess it is in a sense, because it's thanks to the internet, you can promote this to everybody. But really the idea is about local action. And so what it is, is it's a very simple idea. It's it's that once a month, we uh, invite people, to teachers at, at any level, to participate in what we call a teach-in for public schools, which means basically to, to in their own context, however they can do it, to take some time to work with their students on some some facet of like what public schools are about or what it means to be in public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, we have a website at publicschoolsmatter.org. Are we mm-hmm. allowed to promote things? You better. Yeah. Yes, I asked, I asked after I said it. I guess you could edit it out. But anyway, uh, um, and what happens is we're, we're kind of lying 
fallow during the summer, but we'll start back up in, in September. And what happens with it is there's a whole bunch of uh, organized according to content area. There's a bunch of activities that uh, teachers can pick from, actually, that people have submitted. And we have some kind of testimonials about it. And the idea, again, is just taking some time to help educate about what public schools are about. Because, you know, going back to what we started talking about, I think I got to the point where I kind of made the assumption that everybody kind of understood the value of public schools in American society, and I think that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. So I think this is, you know, this is a an effort to make sure that we're thinking explicitly about why public schools matter. Yeah. So your website, one more time, in case anybody wants to get involved with Richmond Teachers for Social Justice. Yeah, it's, so this is publicschoolsmatter.org, and our Teachers for Social, the Richmond Teachers for Social Justice website, I believe, is rvatsj.org. All right. Lots of places to go if yeah, you're yeah. interested in this and advocating for public schools. So um, we've been talking a lot about how how the conversation's been shifting around public schools and how some people seem to be really maybe pro-public schools and maybe some are moving away from it, maybe more towards privatization, for example. What's the future of public education in our country? Do you know the answer to that, Brianna? I do not. <laughs> All right, the end. <laughs> no. What do you think? I don't know. The future of public schools... I really think we have to start focusing a lot on um, like global interactions and we need to think about public not so much as just our local public, but um, public on a grand scheme, um, thinking about how people go into the world and interact with others. So we really need to be conscious of that when we're educating students and thinking about the research that gets done and how that's going to impact the way that students go into the world, the way that teachers prepare students to go into the world. Kurt, what do you think? You know, I'm I'm currently in a somewhat pessimistic stage, and I don't I don't like being that way. I'm a pretty optimistic person in general, mm -hmm. but these are hard times for public schools. They're, it's it's bleak, and I think they really need our support. Uh, I think it's going to take you know a lot of overt political participation in order to keep public schools really even alive uh, in a lot of ways. I think uh, the privatization through choice is a potential problem. Not that all choice is necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that at all, but I think that there's the way that it plays out a lot of times is uh, has, has served to undermine public schools. So I'm worried about that in the short term. I think I think highlighting the, the publicness of public schools in the long run is what's going to save us because it's an institution that I, I can't imagine that without it that we can, we can um, remain uh, like a a real, a real democratic country in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. I and mean, if we're really going to have public participation. So I think highlighting that part of public schools, like how we prepare people to be democratic participants, thinking more and more about that, I think is going to help us in the long run. Mm -hmm. I also think teachers need to reclaim their power. Yes. Um, teachers need to really assert themselves in the political conversations and mm -hmm. not be afraid, although some of the fears are very legitimate. Um, they really need to reclaim that. Kurt, Brianna, thank you all so much. Thanks, David. Thanks for having us. Hey everyone, it's Brianna. So for listeners who do not know about the Education Compact, I just want to provide a brief overview of the extensive efforts taking place behind the scenes as well as those that are more public. The Compact is an initiative proposed by Mayor Stoney's office aimed at increasing the collaboration between Richmond's governing bodies, City Council, the School Board, and the Mayor's office. Specifically, it is an effort to keep everyone on the same page regarding educational needs within Richmond Public Schools. The compact initially contained three components, institutionalizing collaboration, setting transformational achievement goals, and creating a children's cabinet, which would be comprised of local agencies to support the children in RPS, 
not children themselves, as the name might lead you to believe. Upon its initial release, the compact was met with a good deal of opposition due to a few major events in RPS, mainly the announced departure of its superintendent, Dr. Bedden. Richmond Teachers for Social Justice, Support Our Schools, and a number of other educational organizations and advocates held a press conference to call for a delay of the compact. Following that press conference, we met with elected officials and representatives from the mayor's office to share our concerns. We also shared suggestions for ways that they could improve the compact, and we pushed back on certain components in an effort to increase transparency as well as to safeguard the school board's power. Specifically, we advocated for there to be three city council and school board members present on each committee so that meetings would have to be public, whereas in previous versions of the compact, closed-door meetings were allowed. We also pushed for there to be more teacher, parent, and community representation on the compact teams so that corporate and other philanthropic interests were balanced by voices of those directly impacted by educational decisions. Long story short, most of our suggestions were incorporated into the revised version, and the current compact is a framework that we feel will benefit the district. City Council and the school board have held a joint meeting already and have another one scheduled to continue the collaborative process. City Council has adopted a resolution to support the compact, and we anticipate that the school board will as well. We are hopeful that the compact will serve as a model for what genuine collaboration looks like. This process has already proven how impactful community advocacy and activism can be. However, this is the first stage of the compact and we need to stay informed. I have seen how teachers and community efforts can influence the conversation and I encourage everyone listening to get involved, stay involved. Join organizations like Richmond Teachers for Social Justice, support our schools and other advocacy groups. Attend school board and city council meetings and really use your voices to strengthen our public schools.